Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, The Faithful by Lester Del Rey. This is first published in Astounding Science Fiction, April 1938. I believe this is the first year of John W. Campbell's administration of the magazine. I do not uh, notice his name and the editorial. Uh, it's not listed, but that was not um, super uncommon. Um, and you were saying that this was quite an interesting issue, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if Campbell was the editor at this point. And whenever Campbell did become the editor, I remember reading that it, he had about nine months worth mm -hmm. of things that he had to get, you know, that had been paid for that he had to deal with. But I don't know if Campbell attracted these people, but names like Nat Shackner, uh, Raymond Z. Gowan, Ray Palmer, L. Sprague de Camp, Lester Del Rey, Arthur Burks. Uh, those are all names that figure very, very grandly in the first 10 or 15 years of maybe 20 years, uh, right up until about the war, World War II, in the history of uh, the evolution of American science fiction. Mm -hmm. And here they all are on this one table of contents. I should also tell you, I don't know if I should tell you, but I'm going to tell you <laughs> that uh, Arthur, Arthur Burks um, is there. Uh, he is... What was not that uncommon in those days, somebody who wrote science fiction story, stories with his left hand while he had a real job with his right hand. And his real job was being a senior engineer on ENIAC, mm. which was the first general purpose digital computing machine. Um, people these days don't even know why it would be called digital uh, because – for a while there, when computers were being developed, there was a competition between analog machines and digital machines. Uh, analog machines, for example, being able to be controlled by rheostats. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that you – and, for example, a phonograph is, a, uh, is a, an analog device, whereas a CD is a digital device. Uh, and Art Burks was, as I say, senior engineer on the ENIAC project. I knew Art because he became eventually a member of the computer science department mm -hmm. at the University of Michigan. And uh, when I was associate dean in charge of figuring out what to do with computer science at Michigan, um, I had reasons to have lots of activity with Art Burks, who was a true gentleman, hmm. uh, a really lovely person. I never met the man. On the other hand, Lester Del Rey, who offers us here a story called The Faithful, had at least four wives. Right. So <laughs> what he meant by faithful is something we can probe. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm not super familiar with Arthur J. Burks' uh, science fiction output. Um, I, I do recognize that you know he, he has written some science fiction. I know him mostly as a uh, Weird Tales author. Um, he was very prolific in Weird Tales, and I've, re I've read several of his stories. Um, I, I, I have not read the serial that he, uh, he didn't hear, but, um, I, like you, I recognize most of the author's names here and, um, I somehow came, oh, I, I believe it was one of our listeners, uh, sent me an article, um, about, uh, uh I'm trying to remember the, it was, a. Uh, 
It was an article. Anyways, and I was reading it, and that led me to an interview with um, uh, Isaac Asimov, who talked about the importance of the year 1938 uh, for science fiction because of the arrival of John W. Campbell. I'm pretty sure he was editor on this issue. I do not, I cannot guarantee that all of the stories in here uh, are uh, his purchases. However, I suspect that The Faithful was because Del Rey did work for, uh, did write for, um, uh, for Campbell. And uh, this is actually more, more interesting. I think this is, Del Rey's first story, and it's pretty good for a first story, I would say. Um, it has a lot of the Lester Del Rey issues, um, uh, but I, I notice those issues always go away in my remembering of the stories. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, so uh, I, I remember this story incredibly fondly. I want to tell you that up front because uh, I, I remember reading it and I think, oh my God, this is such a cool story. And I thought about it a lot while I was listening to it. And then uh, I, I've subsequently lost the audiobook that I found it in. I don't know where it went. I, I'd read that several times. And I went back and read it here. And it has all the things I remembered, but it's just not as well written <laughs> as I wanted it to be. Um, but I, I find that always to be the case with Lester Del Rey. I don't like, I think Helen O'Loy is a terrific story. I. I don't think he's a terrific writer. Somehow he manages to get terrific stories, even though he's not a terrific writer. And I think a lot of Arthur, uh, no, sorry, not Arthur J. Burks, um, Campbell authors can do that too. Um, write terrific idea stories uh, without necessarily being the most polished and beautiful um, or even, you know, doing it the way I, I would recommend it. <laughs> if I'm um, I really recommend it to, to, to probe further what it is that you are remembering so fondly, uh, let me just try to make a, a few things explicit now for for people who may be listening to us. Mm -hmm. You and I both know that Helen O'Loy is an enormously famous science fiction story. Mm -hmm. Turns out this one, The Faithful, published in April 38, was Lester Del Rey's first published story. Helen O'Loy was in December 38, mm -hmm. so it's that very same year. Helen O'Loy is a story told from the viewpoint of a man who has survived um, after the death of his best buddy, with whom he had made a female robot to mm -hmm. embody all of the characteristics that they, these guys, wanted. And uh, Helen becomes the perfect wife from their viewpoint, to one of the guys, and uh, the other guy never marries because, as it says in the last line, line there never was a, another Helen O'Loy. It's a very powerfully told story. Loads of people have loved it forever, and most feminists look at it and say, what, you think that is perfect woman? You can, you can design her to do what you want? Uh, so it's a controversial story these days, and I think it should be. Um, the Faithful is a, a story also with a first-person uh, narrator, or the first-person narrator in this case turns out to be the leader of the civilization of uh, modified dogs. Mm -hmm. that have been modified to have uh, superior intelligence, vocal abilities, and longevity, modified by humanity. The main story has to do with letting us know how 
we have arrived at a post-apocalyptic world. Men have been involved in destroying most of the world. Our fellow, whose name turns out to be Hungor, H-O-N-G-O-R, mm-hmm. um, our narrator winds up meeting someone who may be the last living human being of all, named Paul Kenyon, and together... Uh, seeing the collapse of civilization, um, the one great lack that these smart dogs have is no hands. Mm-hmm. And so Paul uh, Kenyon tells Hungor that while we in North America were working on getting you dogs uh, up to speed, um, there were other people in Africa working on apes. And they go and they get a whole bunch of apes and bring them back. And they will supply the hands while the dogs supply the brains. And uh, therefore, everything can end nicely. And the ending here um, is, again, something that you want to think about. Um, I won't say the, the last line is Paul Kenyon, as he is dying, saying, for no man knoweth. And it trails off. Mm hmm question of course is, is what what is it that no man knoweth so um no man knoweth the ending of this story <laughs> well uh, but uh, but i doth <laughs> i uh, thought you might and that's what i wanted to ask you about right but before i do i i think i i've got to say that when i read it the first time in my youth in an anthology it didn't make much of an impression on mm. me i thought it was just so homocentric that is uh you know man at the center of everything mm-hmm. the ape that is brought over the head of the apes um is named ptolemy t-o-l-e-m-y but uh, you know i don't pronounce the p in ptolemy either in mm-hmm. the ptolemaic uh, model of the universe what i do know is that the ptolemaic u- model of the universe has been supplanted Uh, Despite what the church may have said to Galileo, it's been supplanted by the Copernican and hence Galilean um, notion of the universe. Ptolemy's universe was one with Earth at the center, or to put it more directly for the purpose of this story, man at the center and God having created the universe a certain way. The story is called The Faithful, Mm -hmm. and I think it has lots of meanings so when I read it, it didn't make much of a pressure on me, except that it was so uh, homocentric. Hmm. When I read it again after you suggested it to us, um, it seemed to me <sighs> different. Hmm. And now that I have read it yet again, um, I, I don't want to set you up for this, Jesse, but I've got to say I think that it is – I think it's a bad story. I agree it is a bad story. Um, there's a lot of bad stories out there. Why are we talking about this stupid bad story? Well, it's not stupid. <laughs> that's that's the reason. It's not a stupid story. Um, I think uh, we just did a show um, on the SFF Audio podcast on a novel by Lester Del Rey called Police Your Planet. And uh, it, I think I talked about this with you a little bit on another podcast because... Um, we were talking about another story in, in an issue that Esther Del Rey edited of Science Fiction Adventures. And um, I think his talent was best used in, as an editor. Um, <laughs> uh, on the other hand, 
uh, you know, there's this guy named David Brin who sells a lot of novels, and he's written a whole series of stories um, uh, called in the Uplift Universe is what it's called. It starts with a book called Sun Diver, and there's a book called Star Tide Rising, and there's a bunch of more of them. Um, I read Star Tide Rising because it had won a Hugo and a Nebula Award, and I found it incredibly badly written. On the other hand, I also found it uh, full of really interesting ideas um, that uh, this has the same too. It's the idea of uplift. That's, I guess, what I'm going to call it. Um, you take an animal that is incapable of human speech and, um, I don't know, scientific thinking and and uh, society and government and that sort of sort of thing, and you turn it into a man-like thing. You're calling it homocentric. I think that's exactly what it is. Um, not treating animals as uh, perfect in themselves, but treating them like they need to be upgraded um, with hands and surgery and gland implantation. Um, and uh, obviously, like, we, we see similar things in, you know, uh, teaching Coco to sign uh, so that we can communicate with another species. I think this is fascinating. Um, and it is a reflection on our own uh, stuff more than it is a reflection on animals, um, hence the homocentrism. On the other hand, um, this is 1938, and Uplift is like 1980. Why is David Brin getting all this attention for essentially not coming up with an original idea? Um, I think it, ideas are really important in science fiction, and obviously this is not the first story to do that either. There's an H.G. Wells novel called... Um, What's it called? <laughs> um, you know the one I, I mean? I don't know which one you're talking about. Oh, uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> ah. Which is uh, essentially an uplift novel as well. Uh, there's a mad scientist who thinks that it would be a great idea to turn non-human uh, animals into human-like animals. I mean, does that through surgery so he can allow them to speak. And, and that's... I think that's 1897, so... Yeah, 1896, 1897. Um, And then, you know, there are other... Olaf Stapleton apparently has a novel, which I have not yet read, which I'm looking forward to, called Sirius. That's a a great novel, 1944. Mm -hmm. I I do recommend that one to you. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's Olaf Stapleton. He is a great writer. (laughs) Um, So why, why, why focus on this Lester Del Rey story? Well, I, I was thinking about why uh, he's, a, he's good at sketching, I think, is what it is. This story, when you look at it closely, is not as good as it should be. Um, I, I would have done many, many things different, and I'm not a writer. So um, what I would say is when I look back at, at fondly, what I remember is that mankind is dying and that his heirs, the dogs and the apes, are have a relationship to their creator that is un unsimilar to the one we have with our creator because do we even have a creator is part of our problem these animals these uh, dog men dog people and ape people have a creator um he's dying and he's sort of gifting them the future but they're you know, man's best friend, right? Man's best friend has been bred for 
centuries to be man's best friend. And the apes have been the people of the forest because if you're uh, not hiding in the forest very quietly, you're uh, bushmeat, right? So we don't have an ambigu- uh, uh, clearly uh, unambiguous relationship with animals. And this story treats animals as if we, it is our duty somehow to uplift them. Wow. And I, I'm not sure that that's a good idea, but I think it's a powerful idea. And that's why it's, it, it's why I think, I think that Campbell did choose it and Campbell would have liked it. Even if I can't guarantee that this is one of those stories he did choose and did like, um, it feels like a Campbell idea. It does feel like a Campbell idea. It also reflects Campbell's notion of the utter superiority of white men over the rest of the world. And that's part of why I think of this as a bad story. Well, everybody's, everybody's killed themselves in this story. All, all humans have destroyed themselves in an, uh, not an atomic war, but a, uh, I don't know, biological, chemical war. Yeah, but you know, this is a 1938 publication. Uh, we've already had the, uh, the, the Japanese uh, extending their co-prosperity sphere into, uh, into China. We've already gotten um, the Italians uh, conquering Ethiopia. Everybody is quite aware that war is imminent. And here we have, uh, this is on page 79, I too, Hunger says, uh, went out to war, driving a plane built for my people mm-hmm. over the cities of the Rising Sun Empire. The tiny atomic bombs fell from my ship on houses, on farms, on all that was man's, who had made my race what it was. For my men told me I must fight. And he never says a word about that being a bad thing. Mm-hmm. He just does what his men want to do. In fact, men had to go to war we're told. They had to fight. This is a perfect story for Campbell, where, in fact, everybody winds up being dead, except for some one fellow um, who manages to come from the American West, and they work their way with it. He works his way with the dogs back to Chicago, the American heartland, and there they find a bunch of airplanes, and they go to Africa. Now, if they're worried about going to Africa, if in fact in Africa people have been um, working on uplifting apes, where would they go? I mean, from Chicago, where's the closest piece of Africa you can get to? Well, about the furthest piece of Africa you can get to is Cape Town. Mm-hmm. And that's where they head. They head to a place which is entirely dominated by whites, not a colony not dominated by Europeans, but by local whites, right? They go to apartheid South Africa. Not in this, everybody's dead at this point, but they it would have been, that, yes, yes. But that's, but that's where they go to find the remnants of the experimentation. Mm-hmm. In other words, the, the colonial powers who in 1938 were still very much in charge in mo- most of Africa, they weren't bothering to uplift anybody. But the local whites, they were bothering to uplift the apes. And so what do we find? We find um, that 
both Hungor, the, the, the dog, and Ptolemy, the old head of the, the apes, they all magically want to help pursue Paul Kenyon's ideas. I would point out that when the dogs fly over, um, somehow they have machines that have been adapted to them. And yet the crucial problem is that they don't have hands. Mm-hmm. Um, that I love, I love the, uh, the, the, the hand waving. Uh, <laughs> when, when Paul, Roger Strand, the first person to ever realize you could uplift dogs. I like your importing David Brin's term for our discussion. Um, he found Hungor and he managed to operate on his throat and mouth and made speech a little bit more possible. So he began searching for other talking dogs. He found five besides Hungor. And with this small start, he began selection and breeding, surgery and training, gland implantation and x-ray mutation were his methods. And he made steady progress. At first, money was a problem, but his pets soon drew attention and commanded high prices. Mm -hmm. Now, in 1966, I think, Roger Zelazny um, won the Nebula Award for the Dream Master. Um, it's got to do with a psychiatrist. Anyway, this guy, uh, this psychiatrist, our main character, meets someone else at a conference. And uh, she says, this is um, my dog, Sigmund. I gave him the night off. Uh, <laughs> he smiled. He can guide me anywhere. He's a mutie, obviously a a slang for mutant shepherd. Oh, Render, that's the main character, grew curious. Can he talk much? She nodded. That operation wasn't as successful on him as on some of them, though. He has a vocabulary of about 400 words, but I think it causes him pain to speak. He's quite intelligent. You'll have to meet him sometime. Render began speculating immediately. He had spoken with such animals at recent medical conferences and had been startled by their combination of reasoning ability and their devotion to their handlers. Remember the story we're talking about today, Jesse, is the faithful. Mm -hmm. Their devotion to their handlers. Much chromosome tinkering, followed by delicate embryo surgery, was required to give a dog a brain capacity greater than a chimpanzee's. Several follow-up operations were necessary to produce vocal abilities. Most such experiments ended in failure, and the dozen or so puppies a year on which they succeeded were valued in the neighborhood of $100,000 each. This is 1966. He realized then, okay, so that's the end. So there's hand-waving. You just make up crap, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Now, if you can just make up crap and you can even make up uh, airplanes that have been modified so that dogs can fly them, why is it that the crucial lack that these dogs would have in a post-human world is a lack of hands? And I would put it to you that hand is a synecdoche that we use for someone who is a source primarily of labor. Yep. Right, a farm hand. How many hands do you have working for you? All hands right? on deck. Exactly. It's just labor. And when they go to South Africa and find these these apes, we're told that they had prepared for them back in America. They had prepared for them housing, which is sufficiently strong to confine them mm-hmm. if they don't want to do peacefully what the dogs need. But they will be okay. It's like, oh, those happy slaves. 
it is incredible. The, the, uh, the dogs are going to Africa to capture apes mm-hmm. and bring them back as forced labor. Unless, of course, they just want to be happy and sing and dance for Massa and do what is hmm. necessary. Right? This is an extraordinary example of racism. It seems to me it's oh, very, re- yeah, it's very sloppy in the, in that. I I don't I don't think I don't think he's thought it through. <laughs> I, well, you know, you may not he may not have thought it through, but the the title of this thing is the faithful, mm-hmm. and faithful might seem like it has to do with um, with dogs because they are known to be faithful exactly. to their right to to their masters. And indeed, we find that there is again and again reference in the story to the the urge that Hungor and all the other dogs have to find men so that they can do what men, meaning humanity, wants. Now, the apes don't begin to have that feeling, but they come to adopt that faith. But finally, finally, Kenyon is dying. And this is how it ends. Man is dying. That is the last flicker of humanity is about to wisp out. Man is dying. Here in our laboratory, Ptolemy keeps repeating something. A prayer, I think it is. Well, maybe the God whom he has learned from man will be merciful and grant us success. Okay, so this going out and getting the apes from Africa isn't just a matter of bringing them over to have hands. We are Christianizing them. We're giving them man's, right, as if men didn't have different religions. Well, they did, of course, but you went and bombed the uh, Empire of the Rising Sun with tiny atomic bombs. Paul Kenyon is all that is left of the old world which Ptolemy and I loved. He lies in the ward, moaning in agony and dying. Sometimes he looks from his windows and he sees the birds flying south. Okay, so we've got bird imagery. I'm working my way towards Son, Father, and Holy Ghost. There goes the Holy Ghost. The sun is dying on the ground, on in the bed there in the laboratory. He gazes at them as if he would never see them again. Well, will he? Something he muttered once comes back to me. For no man knoweth. And that's the end of the story. Mm-hmm. What is it that no man knoweth? Well, I know what no man knoweth. <laughs> Please tell me. It's from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 27. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Right. This is one of those places in the New Testament where Jesus is saying there is no way for the fa- to the Father but through the Son. The Son and the Father are co-knowledgeable. They are the same thing, and no one can achieve heaven. No one can know the Father save through the Son, and no one can know the Son save through the Father. That is, Paul Kenyon is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, is holy man. He has stayed alive long enough to go and lead the expedition to Africa to bring back the hands that his people need so that they can all go on. 
This is the death of Christ. Hmm. I um I I, I want to read the passage. This is on page eighty four. This is after Ta- we meet Ptolemy, who uh, gave me the only laugh of the whole story. Um, on page eighty three, he said, "They do not want me to come to you, but I know man. Man is capitalized. He was good to me, and he had coffee and cigarettes." Yes. <laughs> now, well, th- this is on page. Um, and so we were introduced to Ptolemy, who is leading leading his people against their will to contact the. Let me just say, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Anyone who studied the history of European colonization knows that the church was used as an instrument of colonization. Mm-hmm. Right? There's just no doubt about that. You just steal their ideology, destroy their culture, and the people become yours to remold. But American soldiers bring cigarettes and coffee mm-hmm. in order to pacify the, uh, the people out there. The fact that both of them are drugs is sort of ignored in 1938, but we know. It's I'm also sorry. used to pacify the soldiers. <laughs> um, let, me, right. l- let me get to uh, this uh, interesting passage on page 84 in the right-hand column. Um, Today I've come back from the bed of Paul Cannon. We often together now, perhaps. I should include the faithful, Ptolemy, when he can talk, and among us there has grown a great friendship. I laid certain plans before him today for adapting the apes' mentality and physicality until they are men. Nature did it with an ape-like brute once. Why can we not do it with the ape people now? The earth would be peopled again. Science would rediscover the stars, and man would have a foster child in his own likeness. And we, the dog people, have followed man for 200,000 years. This is too long to change. Of all Earth's creatures, the dog people alone have followed man thus. My people cannot lead now. No dog has ever complete, is, ha, was ever complete without the companionship of man. The ape people will be men. And so... These aren't. Uh, he isn't. Uh, he hasn't got a consistent ideology here. What he's got is a whole basket of ideas, um, and and he says, "Well, what if we turn uplifted dogs? Ah, yes, but they've got no hands. See, so um, well, we could do a little surgery, and apparently they did surgery, but it wasn't enough so that they could, uh, I guess, oh, have opposable ha- hands, right? Opposable thumbs, and they can do stuff with their mouths. You know, they put the first." Uh, Ah, first major animal in space was a dog, right? Um, in, Sput- uh, in a Sputnik capsule. What right, was Laika. Laika, right. Um, because they can train them to do stuff. And yeah, it's true that uh, dogs are faithful. But in dogs, we don't see a kind of independence that we see in, in apes. And so even the dog here is saying, we can't be the leaders here, even though we're more advanced technically. We need you so badly, we, we need you to become what we need you to be. I think it's, it's, what's so cool about this story is that he's just exploring it. And he, his explorations are kind of um, uh, bad. <laughs> but because the territory is so new and so interesting, um, and he's sort of... Uh, some bumbling it doesn't matter because we're looking at the ideas and not looking at the way it's it put together 
And, and it's not terrible. I, I think, you know, like a, a very comparable story to it and much better written is uh, who can, But Who Can Replace Man uh, by Brian Aldiss. I think that one is incredibly well put together. And this one is badly put together. And yet I feel like they're very similar stories. I, I agree. Um, when I said uh, early on today that I thought it was a bad story, I didn't mean that it wasn't an entertaining story. Uh, I just meant that when you think about it, it it proposes ideas that are incoherent, as you exactly. say. It's a jumble of ideas that are incoherent, and most of them are not simply homocentric. They are white male American Christian centric, and without even recognizing how thoughtlessly it expects us to think it's a good thing to find that now that men have killed themselves, well, we'll just go and come up with man version two. Mm-hmm. Is that really what we want? Well, I guess the only way we'll find out is if we take advantage of the opportunity to uh, find that there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. Thank you.